Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined as always by my athletic colleague, Paul Tenorio. Paul, MLS Cup is approaching. We are recording on Thursday morning for a change. It's not a late night, our usual time. Um, we're recording on Thursday morning. MLS Cup is on Saturday between the Columbus crew, who will be hosting the Seattle Sounders at Mafre Stadium, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I, I don't know if that's kickoff. I don't think it is. Um, but start of the broadcast on, on Fox, Big Fox. I'm excited for this game. I think it should be a really good game. Um, it's obviously the headline news in MLS this week. Although there, there are some other, uh, secondary headlines that are pretty important. Um, and we're going to get to those. Don Garber's State of the League address, a big change in Miami. Um, so we'll get to those later in the show, but we are going to start with some MLS Cup talk, some roster talk about Seattle and Columbus and just kind of a breakdown of some of the positive moves that these teams have made over the years and some of the qualities of their coaches, of their executives that have made them so successful. Uh, in recent seasons in MLS. So I think we can start there, Paul. You know, uh, we talk a lot about GMs on this show, right? Uh, Seattle's Garth Lagerway. This is his fourth final in five years. Same for Brian Schmetzer. Same for the club. Um, Columbus, GM and president Tim Bezbachenko. This is his third final in five years. He obviously coming to Columbus before the start of the 2019 season from Toronto, where he faced the Sounders in MLS Cup in 2016 and 2017. Caleb Porter, an MLS Cup champion himself, head coach of the crew. He was head coach of the Timbers in 2015 when they beat the crew at Mafre Stadium in the final. So let's start there. Let's start with why, what it is about these, I, I guess, GMs, in your opinion, that has made them so successful over the years in terms of putting together rosters. Well, I think... Um both of them are, first of all, really intelligent, and that matters. Um, they also both understand the MLS rules really well, and I think that's probably the most important quality to a good general manager in Major League Soccer. And I think another thing is they, they are willing to spread the responsibility and trust people around them to execute on the ideas of why and how they, they do what they do, right? The types of players they're looking for. And so, for example, in Seattle, Chris Henderson is, he's the main scout. He's the guy that goes and looks for the players, identifies the player. He's the technical director is his, is his role, but that's his job. And Garth lets him, uh, lead the way when it comes to soccer operations in that area and scouting. Um, both of these, these GMs have been known to, um, to trust their analytics departments. Um, and so those types of, I don't think we give enough credit to people who are in positions of power who are willing to, um, delegate. And I think these two GMs have done that really well. They've hired the right people in those positions and it's benefited them, um, tremendously, both for Bez in Toronto and now in Columbus and, and for Garth in Seattle, especially. One note on that. Um, it is kind of interesting to me. These guys share a similar background, both played professionally, logger way in MLS for a number of years as a goalkeeper back in the early days of the league and Bezpachenko briefly in USL, uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, they then both went to law school. Uh, they both practiced. I don't know if practiced is the right word, but they worked for big law, law firms, um, for a couple of years before moving back into MLS. Bezpachenko at the league office, logger way. At, at Real Salt Lake. Um, and I do think it's kind of interesting that they both have that more corporate background, right? Because you talk about it in terms of delegating, 
right? A lot of times people get elevated to these executive positions without the proper executive training, right? They can pick a player. Maybe they can manage a roster really well, but they might not know how to empower people and how to organize an entire sporting department from analytics, academy, second team, first team, coaching staff, sports science, all of that stuff. That's really important when you're talking about winning and winning is done on the margins. Um, so it's interesting that those two guys kind of got that training um, a little bit more than than maybe a traditional GM would. And and when you talk to Garth Lagerwey, I just did a story on what's made them so successful, along with Toronto FC, which you know obviously they immediately lost um, to really make that story pop. Well done. But you know he talks about pulling directly from his time at Latham, which is the law firm he worked at, one of the biggest in the country, certainly a huge law firm here in Chicago where I live, and the corporate structure and the corporate governance, the way that they ran Latham, that he has pulled ideas straight from there he he joked that his staff makes fun of how often he uses words like vertical integration um but that's that's taking it from an incredibly successful law firm that operates globally and and bringing it into your soccer team you know that's taking something successful and and using it to your advantage something that you know and that you study um and you know so it's not it's not just like hey uh i, I worked there let me pull a couple elements. I mean, they, he, he studied what, what he, what was successful at Latham and he brought it there. Um, and he's not, it's not a secret, you know, he talks about that. And I think, you know, for me, what's, what's frustrating sometimes, Sam, is like, you see these successful GMs who are successful across different clubs, both of these, both Bez and, and Garth. And yet I don't know how much the rest of the league really tries to study what, what these clubs do and what these leaders do. I, I think that's, I think that actually separates Major League Soccer from other professional sports leagues. You don't think it's like the depth of it, of of the copycat nature of the league is very is very deep. I guess you don't think you don't think that exists. Yeah, I think I I think in other leagues, like if you look at at Theo Epstein, right, and people who have worked under him, they go and they take GM jobs at other places. They're poached, and they're poached because those clubs want to pull the ideas, right? They can't take Theo Epstein. But they can take his ideas and his structure and the sure, way he puts things but, together. But to be fair, like first of all, Elliot Fall, GM in Salt Lake, worked under Garth Lagerwey for years. A, um, B, they don't have that many people working under them. It's not like a baseball team where you have ten guys underneath, right? So you might not be able to pull the people the way you do in baseball or football, but you can study what they do and you can and 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 there is yes your rivals you're playing against each other in the league but there is some idea sharing that occurs and and i just think that the structure of those teams is not copied enough you know we know we know how teams are set up we can we can look across the league and see the way teams hire the way that they delegate their money and in infrastructure and how many teams have the infrastructure that toronto and Seattle, and now Columbus have. Not very many. Well, when you say infrastructure, what do you mean? Because like you look at Toronto and Columbus, right? You have you have the f- the physical facilities. Seattle doesn't really have those, not in the same way. So so what do you mean? Explain that. I mean, look at the look at the way that Seattle has invested. I mean, the the the, the quote from Garth is infrastructure isn't sexy, but that's what makes the difference, right? So scouting department, how how much of a department actually exists, and how robust is it? 
sports science, significant amount of investment, not just in the people in the sports science department in Seattle, but in the in the technology. Uh, and same, and I know Toronto is making a big investment in that area as well, um, though they have already invested. Uh, analytics, another area that's incredibly important uh, in Toronto, Seattle, and now Columbus under Bezbachenko. So, you know, are they building out that part of soccer operations? I think you can probably point to, I can think of two off the top of my head, three, Red Bull, NYCFC, and LAFC who are investing in those areas. Um, Sporting Kansas City certainly has put in a lot of money to their scouting department and their sports science department. Um, but there there aren't... A t- if you look around the rest of the league, that's not the case in, in many of these markets. You don't see that at at DC United or at Houston Dynamo or uh, even even successful clubs in, in other ways, like FC Dallas, who's been very successful with the academy, or Houston Dynamo or Orlando City or... Enter Miami, or we can go down the list. It just doesn't exist the way it does at these clubs that are continuously putting themselves in the conversation to to be successful. Uh, I mostly agree with that. Um, I would say mo- a lot of teams, I think, are investing more on sports science side. I think that's become relatively common. Analytics is still not. There are only a few full time analytics guys at clubs across the leagues, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I, I do agree, though, that the copycat nature isn't deep enough. Teams aren't doing a good enough job of studying, and that's kind of why we see a lot of them make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, and that can be frustrating. I do want to say, though, you know, we're talking about all these things on the margins, right? Like, these are percentage points differences that we're talking about when it comes to winning a championship or winning a game. The main factor here is, was, and always will be, how much money are you spending, Right. And when you talk about Seattle, they spend money on their DPs, right? At least, at least Rui Diaz and, and Lodero. Their third DP has been a little cheaper in past years. When you're looking at Bezbachenko's Toronto teams, those were some of the most expensive in league history. Columbus are not at that level, right? Um, they are spending more money. Lucas Zellerion, I believe the reported fee, I can never remember if it was $7 million or $8 million. Um, I think it was $8 million that, that they paid the Tigres uh, to secure him this offseason. So that's that's a, one of the bigger fees in, in league history. That's serious, right? But they're not going to be doing that every offseason. Like that's, that's kind of a one-off type of move for them. Um, but they're still succeeding too. And so when you talk about that, all right, why are these clubs, in the case of Seattle with money, consistently successful. Well, it's because of the things that they do on the margins in some ways, and it's because they get those big signings right, right? But then when you look at a Columbus, why are they succeeding? It's because they are doing the things on the margins right, and they're getting good value across the entire roster. And I just want to give a shout out because Bezpachenko has made some signings with the crew, but the majority of that roster, the bulk of that roster were Greg Berhalter and Pat Onstad, who is still technical director. Uh, in Columbus and, and doesn't really get a lot of love publicly, um, but I think probably deserves some more. Um, those guys, you know, got good value. They got really good bang for the buck on a lot of those players. And that's still the name of the game in MLS. Um, and I think both of these teams have done a good job with that. In addition, in the case of Seattle, of, of really knocking their big signings out of the park. So that's, that's one thing. I do want to co- talk about the coaches for a second too, though, Paul. Specific qualities of, of Porter and Schmetzer that sort of stand out as, is beneficial and helpful for these teams. I mean, Schmetzer's going for his third cup in five years. Like, that's remarkable. And Porter's going for his second overall. And, and he would be one of just a few guys to win with multiple teams. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, we have to note that they are both American coaches, both 
who have spent their entire career within the American system. Schmetzer came up through the lower divisions, won championships, by the way, in USL, won, game, won consistently at USL level with Seattle, um, and then was, was an assistant under Ziggy Schmidt um, for many, many years until he took over the, the job on an interim basis. Uh-huh. Won an MLS Cup as an interim head coach and then got the full-time job. Caleb Porter, of course, built a powerhouse program at Akron and then went to the Timbers, won there, won an MLS Cup there, um, took a year off, and then and then went to Columbus. So I, I, the knowledge, again, of the American player and the American system is really important there. And I think if you look at both of these rosters, you see why that's, why that's important. Understanding the importance and the role that American players will play in your team to be successful or, or players who have spent more of their career in North America than anywhere else is is important in trusting those players to play big roles. Um, certainly, I think Columbus, the fact that two of their three DPs are are MLS players, Jossie's Artis and Darlington Nagby is indicative of that. Um, with Caleb Porter, I, I'm going to speak to him a little bit more specifically than Brian Schmetzer. Um, he's got a very clear system. He's got a way he wants to play, and he knows exactly how he wants to do it. And they went out and signed players specific to that system. They took a good roster, and they made it Caleb Porter's roster, and and that and that made it better. Um, you're right that it was built mostly by Greg Berhalter and and Pat Onstad, um, but he did add some pieces that made it work for him. And I think that's really important too, Sam. I I think you can speak a little bit more to Brian Schmetzer on that. Do you do you feel like they've developed over time an uh, an identifiable style under Schmetzer? I think more of one this year than in previous years, right? You know, I think moving Jordan Morris to the left side has, has been kind of key for that, right? And, and signing Jao Paolo, I think, has been pretty key for that. That being said, I don't think Schmetzer's strength is in a style of play or a system, right? I think his strength is empowering his players, basically. He knows he has a really talented roster, and he basically empowers them to go out and do their thing. He's really loyal to his guys. I think sometimes to a fault. I'm very curious to see how that manifests with his lineup choice on Saturday, right? You know, we saw everyone gave him credit for the subs that he made against Minnesota. I thought some of those guys should have been starting the game when you, when you look at Kelvin Leardon and Gustav Svensson um, in particular, right? So are they going to get the start ahead of Alex Roldan and Jovan Jones? And is Christian Roldan going to move out to the wing? in replace of Jones with Svensson sliding in. Is Ariaga going to start over Shane O'Neill? Like those are big, big questions that Schmetzer is going to have to answer. But I think, I think he's basically smart enough and humble enough, which is something not many coaches are, right? And this is like a real skill, in my opinion, for Schmetzer, um, to sort of stay out of the way a little bit, right? That's a good team that he has. And Nico Lodero, I think, is, is like a insane presence to have on a roster, both in terms of what he does on the field and how he leads that team. Um, and Schmetzer, you know, he's set, the, he's, he's got them playing in a way that I think can maximize their potential. And he's stayed out of the way enough to, to kind of empower the players. And that's not something that every coach does. And I, and I do want to say one thing about Porter as well. To me, and this isn't like, this is me saying this from afar. It seems like he's mellowed out significantly from when he was in Portland because he had those same clear ideas, right, about how he wanted to play when he was with the Timbers. But he was known as like sort of being like super, 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 super intense. 
and he's still intense. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Just like a lot of coaches out there, he's a little bit, he's, he's very far to that side of the spectrum, but you know, listening to him in his interviewers, interviews over the last couple of years, even talking to people on his staff, just sort of on background, they say that Caleb has essentially chilled out. And I think that's a big thing for this team too, because when you have that super intense boss, that can keep you on edge. And that's a really fine line to walk. You want to keep your players on edge a little bit, but you also want them to feel comfortable and empowered. And and so I think he's doing that better than what he did in Portland. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Sam, I want to go back. I know we went over to the coaches. I want to go back to something you said earlier that just really bugs me um, about MLS. And that is the lack of teams that I've invested in analytics. You know, I, I, I have a good friend of mine who worked in soccer analytics for many years um, in the premier league. And his note was essentially, you know, if you're working for a big premier league club in analytics, what is your job really? You know, it's more in the advanced scouting of the other team than it is in finding talent. Because if you're working for a Premier League team, a big a, one of the bigger clubs, you know, you can go spend money on well-known players who are succeeding in well-known leagues. And, and it's not about finding the diamond in the rough. In MLS, in a salary-capped league, everything is about finding the diamond in the rough. Everything is about finding value. Except for maybe one or two DP signings per team. Depending on what club you're at, right? right. Too. So... You know, the fact that every mid-tier spending club 
hasn't put more of their resources into analytics than anywhere else is just bad business. Well, is it is it though? Because because what the, you got to consider the trade-off, right? It's not necessarily cheap to run an analytics department. So if you're spending, okay, if you're spending a few hundred thousand dollars a year on it, say, and I don't know if that's what it costs, but I think that sounds reasonable in terms of salary and all of the other things that you software, all of that stuff. Call it 500k a year. That's money that you could put into a transfer fee. Right? Sure, but but you have to think long term here, right? You have to think about Software, the, the, the investment in building out software is investment in people. And it's a short, like once you build the software, the software exists. Um, it's a salary for a person to maintain it. They might that, not be building software. the software. They might and, just be and buying right. They it. might not yeah. be doing what baseball teams do and, and hiring someone to build the software. They might just be paying for software that's already, that already exists. So to me, if you look at the long, it's like, it's like an academy, right? It's, it's expensive. It's a $2 million expense every year. But it's a long-term vision that all you need to do is hit on one or two of those academy products, and it pays for itself for a few years. And the same goes for analytics. If you hit on one or two really good players that are well below their value, I mean, we talk about the Red Bulls all the time, that that built a roster that was playing with, with guys who were way outperforming their salary numbers. And they were a supporters, consistently supporter shield winner, consistently in the hunt for an MLS Cup. And, you know, that matters, right? I mean, look at this Columbus crew roster. I, I know you disagree with me about Milton Valenzuela just because of the cost of, of a left back. But you sign a guy like Artur or like Valenzuela for a million-dollar transfer fee, that's nothing for a consistent starter for four or five years who, who is— That's who not is nothing in MLS. High quality. But, but in the grand scheme, if Columbus crew can do that, they, they took both of those players, by the way, their first year were on loan with an option to buy. So the overall price of those two players over a five-year, six-year period is going to be incredibly low compared to their output at that position. Compared to, and maybe left back's the exception because there are so few teams that spend on that position. But they, but Greg Berhalter prioritized that position because it was so important to his system in Columbus. So he went and spent money on the left back and right back. They had multiple right backs at one time. Uh, Waylon Francis, Harrison Afol. I mean, he really wanted a specific style of. of Still have those guys, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, so that you know, to me, and Arthur's another really good example. Brought him on loan, paid a million dollars to sign him. You know, I, I think that it, it just really can help your roster if you're signing guys that are at low TAM levels who are consistent starters. And the best path to doing that isn't solely with the eye test, with the scouts, as good as they could be, as good as they might be. And, 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 um, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a worthy and, and smart investment for teams and not an, and, and very few are, are putting the money there. And, and part of that's the owner's fault. Right? I mean, I would say it's all the owners actually, because if you think about it, right? Like when you, when you talk about the trade-offs that I mentioned earlier between, okay, am I going to spend my money here? Or am I going to spend it on, on a player like directly? Right. Well, if a GM's making that long-term over short-term choice, he needs to feel empowered by his owner, right? And like, if he's if he's looking at his own time horizon and saying, if I don't turn this thing around in two, three years, I'm going to get fired, then he's not, you know what, he's going to make the short-term choice, right? So that that needs to come from an ownership level, um, straight up. 
in my opinion. And I do and, think and I do think if we're talking if we're talking about Columbus outside backs, Harrison Awful is the one to pick in terms of the value play. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but, I mean, yes, you want guys that are in super low numbers, right? That's the ideal. But my point is, if you're shopping internationally and you're going to shop internationally, if you're MLS, where did they get Awful from? Tunisia. That was like a, such a random signing, and he's been an awesome player in this league. Yeah, you you need to be able to find value, and I think we've seen players that have come um, when when teams have gone to Africa. It's not an easy market to work in, right? It, you can miss very very easily. Minnesota United went and tried to spend on some you know some some players there, and they didn't hit. Uh, but when you hit, it can be a big deal, right? Yeah. Latif Blessing is is another really good example of a player who came on a very low value and became a very good player in this league. I mean, you're missing a glaring example, the best example. Who am I missing? New who? Oh, oh. How could I forget? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> How could I forget? Maybe I was just setting you up to just knock that off the tee, you know? Yeah, you threw me an alley-oop. You threw a beer can. I volleyed it. <laughs> exactly. But anyways, <laughs> we'll put all that aside. But I do think it's noteworthy that Toronto, Columbus, and Seattle all invest heavily in analytics. I don't think that is a coincidence. It, it, it helps their scouting process. I can't really disagree with that. Um, you know, these teams do the winning is done on the margins in MLS, and that's one of the margins. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't hate on that. I do want to kind of, sorry, sorry, go ahead. real quick, real quick. I know you blamed the owners, and I do agree that a it's lot of it's not so much blaming. It's just like if you're going to do it, it's like you have to empower your people. But there are some GMs that should not be let off the hook who don't believe in analytics who don't want to trust what the numbers say, who wouldn't trust what the numbers say, and That's who don't fair. hire people because they don't believe in it. They want to make the decision name names, based Paul. on what they see. No, I'm not going to name names. Why too, not? It would, it, would, it would take too long. The list Coward. is too long. Coward. Um, <laughs> I do <laughs> I do want to ask, because I think one of the things that makes Lagerwey and Bezbachenko both kind of stand out is their grasp of the MLS rules. And that's a real competitive advantage, right? That's a real market inefficiency that you can exploit. Um, probably helps, you know, these, these two trained as lawyers. Um, you know, they, they kind of have brains that think in this way to sort of pick, pick apart at different roles and maybe find loopholes. Um, but on that note, one signing that stood out as an under the radar kind of MLS masterclass acquisition, if you will, for, for Lagerway at the Sounders, Maybe not for Bezbachenko at the crew. He hasn't had a ton of them, but maybe a crew player or even a TFC player when Bezbachenko was there. Any any signing in particular that stands out for you in that way? Wow. Um, well, you got a, you haven't named your Garth signing yet, so maybe you talk about your Garth signing while I think about a Toronto player that fits the mold. Well, I, I asked you the question, so I haven't. Of course, I haven't named any yet. Uh, I don't know that there's a clear one with Toronto that stands out. I mean, I think oh, I have to go back and and look look through the guys that they brought in. You um, mentioned a few for Columbus already. They weren't Bezbachenko yeah, I mean, guys. Those guys but... aren't Bezbachenko guys, though, right? Yeah, um, but but good sure examples. They're, they're on the same level as this, as in terms of like looking around the rules. But I will say again, credit to Greg Berhalter's staff for going and signing guys on loans, one year loans, gives them a trial run, and then a low low buy fee after that is a very good example of working the MLS budget rules, right? Because you can bring in somebody on a very low cap hit in year one. And you don't take on the transactional fees until year two, and until you're sure that they're that they're worthy of of that transactional fee. I mean, I think Giassi's artist is a great example of this. Honestly, like it's it's a little bit untraditional answer to this question, I guess. But 
what did they get him for? Four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in allocation money. He was like he was a distressed asset, if you will, at the time. For those that don't remember, he was miserable with the galaxy in his final year there. Played it right back a couple of times. Um, kind of you know shattered confidence. I think it's fair to say. And he's come to Columbus, and when you're looking at like dollars per goal for strikers in MLS. Like he's got to be up near the top over the last few years of of that metric, um, and that's even with raises that have made him a, a designated player for the crew. So I think that's a really good one there. In Seattle, one of my favorites is probably Gustav Svensson. They got him for a pretty significant discount in his first year because he was coming from the Chinese Super League and he had played there for one season, big money salary, and after his first year. The Federation in China, or the league, I, I can't remember exactly, imposed a new limit on the number of foreigners that were allowed to play and were allowed to be in the 18, and he essentially was a casualty of that. Um, so they brought him over. Uh, I believe the Chinese club covered a good portion of his salary in the first year. I think he was on loan, um, made it permanent. So that's just kind of like a good, like, hey, like this league, players are going to be available for cheap for a very specific kind of strange kind of like one-off reason. Let's so let's go see if we can find it. And he's been a key part in in some really excellent teams in Seattle and has actually resurrected his career with Swedish national team in the process too. And I think I, I do want to point out cuz I when I spoke to Chris Henderson um and Garth and Schmetzer for that story, they talked about their their process in signing guys and how important it is to have a really good picture of, of the person in general, what their motivations are, what their personalities are like, what they'll add to the locker room. If they're adding a bad personality to the locker room, whether their talent outweighs that personality and whether the locker room can overcome that anyway. And I think it is worth noting that a guy like Svensson came and came with something to prove and and has used his time in Seattle to, like you said, enhance his career right because you you look over at the chicago fire kind of copied we talk about copycat league that model right they they went and signed nico gaitan out of china on on a nothing wow. salary because i forgot i forgot that he was <laughs> yeah and he he signed for it was a it was a smart deal in terms of mls rules and taking on a dp for non-dp numbers but the motivation wasn't there for Gaetan. You know, he, he arrived. He's a very good player. Clearly could have been dominant in Major League Soccer. But I, it didn't ever look like he wanted to be there. It didn't ever look like he looked at it as a permanent move for his career or as the right move for his career. And so, you know, I, I think there has to be a credit considering the investment that Seattle was going to put into him long term. Hey, let, let's see if this guy has the right reasons for coming here. And and it's not necessarily the fire's fault that Gaetan wasn't focused on, on being an MLS or maybe it was, but um, I do think it's, it's noteworthy that, that Svensson had the right personality um, to go along with being a good, smart MLS budget move. Yeah. Agreed. And I think both of these teams have pretty good internal cultures. And I think you saw that on the field in Seattle's conference final against Minnesota. Although I will say, I will say part of the collapse for Minnesota in the last 15, 20 minutes of that game, probably due to the fact that they were playing on three days rest and Seattle had five. Just saying. Yeah. Three, three days rest and flying across the country to Seattle. And um, yeah, I think it certainly factored in. I do want to say, you know, we can talk about 
um, kind of the smart, higher profile signings or bigger money signings, which Svensson kind of falls into, right? Because he, he wouldn't have come if his normal salary was on the books. But when you look back at both of these rosters, there is a premium on finding good young domestic players to supplement the roster. Um, and I think Bez did a really, really good job of that in Toronto. Uh, when he built the team that 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 won an MLS Cup, uh, and you know it wasn't just the Michael Bradley, Josie Altador who were overpaid, um, considering their market value, but brought a huge marketing aspect, the leadership aspect, and all of that. But you look at Drew Moore, Stephen Betashore, Will Johnson, Justin uh, Morrow, Justin Morrow. I mean, there there were numerous Marky Delgado. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they went and found guys in all the different ways that you can domestically. That became starters. They were a pretty domestic players. heavy roster, Toronto. Yeah, they, they, still they are. became they Fact. were starters. They were contributors. I mean, even even complementary pieces that um, that have played out even with this Toronto team. I mean, Subasa Endo, uh, uh, Richie Larea, who was who was brought in on a trial after after failing at Orlando City as a midfielder, um, and and is now one of the the, the better right backs in the league. Um, Chris Mavinga is a, is a here's that's an example of a random international transfer that worked out really well for Bezbachenko. Um, I think he was coming from Russia. I don't remember. So I, so I don't think that one was too random. He had a decent pedigree, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, but it's going into a market that not a lot of MLS teams shop in, right? And, yeah. and how are you identifying those players? You know, I think it's, it's a question to ask ask Bez. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And that, and that was a that was a. Uh, a little nod to a story that you're working on. <laughs> yes. Um, by the time you're listening to this, it will hopefully be out on the internet. So there you go. Um, one thing, Paul, that you've mentioned a couple of times is, is kind of the domestic players uh, that play supplemental roles. And, and I do want to say largely supplemental roles on these two rosters. I think if you're running out the best 11 for these two teams, you're looking at eight international starters for both of them. Um, so I just, I just wanted to make that point, like, because you've said it a couple of times, sort of just give the, give the broader picture, not to, not to rain on your parade or anything. I'm not trying to call you out here, Paul, but I did want to give that perspective. Yeah. I, I, just real quick. I think domestic players in MLS more and more are depth pieces and less and less. Yeah. I mean, that starters. being said, you know. Giassi's artist, Darlington Nagby, Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan, Stefan Fry. Uh, these guys are really important players on those teams. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not that, not that they can't star. It's just that there aren't quite as many of them as there, as, as international players on, on the first choice lineups. The, the depth is really important. It is. When and, you talk it's about it's really important yeah. to build cheap and to get, again, with value. We'll do this in another show. But we talk, we've talked on the show about the perception of, of American players compared to their actual ability and value. And, and it's an area where I think, uh, international GMs, foreign GMs who come to the league takes them one or two years to understand, Hey, you know, if we're looking for value for the, for the bang for the buck, we can find it in this league because this league keeps tamps down value on players intentionally. Um, and so when you're building up the depth of the roster, it's really important to be able to get guys who can play real minutes um, within MLS or within the draft or within your homegrowns. And that's why knowing the player pool is so important in this league. And I think that's why domestic or not domestic, but MLS experienced coaches and general managers have such a leg up on their international competition um, in many ways. Um, 
I do want to say one last thing kind of on this topic and then transition to state of the league. Um, we've talked a lot about kind of the back end of the roster and the middle class of the roster and the winning on the margins. I just want to point out again, a big, big reason that these two teams are here are the DPs. And those guys cost money. <laughs> um, and they're really, really good. And in Seattle's case, Rui Diaz, incredible in the playoffs throughout his career in Seattle. Nico Lodero, one of the best, maybe the best player in the league over the last five years. When you talk about the, the entirety of those five years, um, Jao Paulo has been really good. Um, he's a DP for them. Jordan Morris is certainly a DP level player. So when you're looking at the top players, the guys that are difference makers in playoff games, Seattle off the charts. Same thing with Columbus when you're talking about Zellerayan and Nagby and Zardes. Um, so I think those that's really key in these discussions. And it's cool to talk about and all the other things that we talked about and drill down kind of on the minutia there. Um, but at the end of the day, those kind of are the most important guys, the most important names, most important people on these clubs. So you got to get those right. Those two teams have... And they are in MLS Cup. With that, I think we can take a little brief break and then we can transition to State of the League and a few other topics. Thank you, Sam, for that beautiful passing of the baton. It's Joe Lowry here to let you know that today's show is brought to you by Away. Away creates thoughtful products designed to change how you see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase, crafted with features that make travel more seamless. And now, when even the familiar looks different, you can count on Away's range of essentials to solve real travel problems whenever you take the next trip. We know, travel is weird these days, but no matter where you need to go this holiday season, Away offers a range of suitcases, bags, and other travel products made of different materials, like polycarbonate, aluminum, and durable nylon. They offer these things in a variety of colors and sizes, so whatever you need to bring with you, Away has luggage that will help make your future trip more seamless, whenever that trip may be. All of Away's suitcases are designed to last a lifetime with durable exteriors that can even withstand the roughest of baggage handlers. Every suitcase comes with an interior organization system that includes a built-in compression pad to help you pack more in and a hidden and removable laundry bag that separates your dirty clothes. Every suitcase also has four 360-degree spinner wheels that guarantee the smoothest roll, even with the most hectic of airports and stations. Besides all of those wonderful features, there are great benefits to using Away. Away products are designed to last a lifetime. If any part of your suitcase breaks, Away's standout customer service team will arrange to have it fixed or replaced. There's also a 100-day trial on everything Away makes. If you decide it's not for you, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund during that period. Away also offers free shipping and returns on any order within the continuous United States, Europe, Canada, and Australia. Shop their seamless selection of suitcases and bags at awaytravel.com slash TSS and gift someone something to look forward to this holiday season. That's awaytravel.com slash TSS. Thank you to Away for sponsoring today's show. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. 
just kidding. Very much just kidding. Because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the, 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy. And they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. And we are back. Allocation Disorder Pre-MLS Cup Edition. Paul, a MLS Cup tradition. Every year, the week before the game, MLS Commissioner Don Garber gives his annual State of the League address. Usually, it's in a ballroom or a conference room in a hotel full of people, cameras, microphones. This year, of course, being this year, it was over Zoom, which was a little bit of a different experience. Um I don't think this year's edition was quite as noteworthy as what we've seen in recent years. That being said, there were some important nuggets to come out of it. What stood out to you from Garber's State of the League address, Paul? I think it's actually something he didn't say by saying something, which is the force majeure clause. Um, he did not answer directly whether or not Major League Soccer would trigger force majeure. Explain and, what that means. And A force majeure clause, as we learned at the beginning of this pandemic, is a clause that allows uh, either side of a CBA to pull out of the agreement if something uh, unforeseen changes the dynamics of that agreement. So, um, you know, an act of God, as they like to say, with a pandemic, perhaps like that, a, a global pandemic. And so MLS didn't have a force majeure in the CBA when the pandemic hit. They renegotiated the CBA um, before MLS is back. They renegotiated the CBA they had already agreed to. In order to get a force majeure in, and um, we fully expect that they will trigger the force majeure before the start of the 2021 season. And what that means is that they will come back to the negotiating table to talk about terms for the 2021 season. And what that really means is a pay cut for the players, right? MLS is going to be looking to decrease their spending in order to... Um, make up for the the significant loss of revenue that they incur by not having fans in stadiums and and will continue to, me, to incur next year. Yeah, that that to me is what stood out most is is Don Garber basically confirmed by by not saying anything that we should expect another labor negotiation ahead of March 2021. Aren't you so excited to report about that? Just more it was CBA. My favorite time Sam was was just talking CBA and force majeure with you all. How many how many episodes of this very podcast that do you think were done exclusively on cba negotiations <laughs> like six 
What's the over under? Our listeners are probably super excited for a whole nother round of those. Come, come. Hey, we can all, we can, we can all go on this journey together. You know, we're all in this together. 2020. Um, I do think it is interesting. I believe that the force majeure would have to be triggered pretty early on in the process, which is something that Garber sort of hinted at um, when he said, you know, we don't know if we're going to trigger this, but that decision would have to be made well before any decision about attendance in stadiums, um, which will be obviously kind of more of a later breaking thing. So it's going to be interesting to see talking to various parties over the last couple of months kind of about this possibility. Everyone is pretty united in the belief that this would really, really, really upset the players who already feel a little bit, hmm, what's the best way to phrase this, <laughs> done dirty. They didn't like how things were handled by the league and the owners ahead of in the renegotiation ahead of MLS's back over the summer. So the relationship there is already a little bit frayed, um, and they would be very upset if force majeure got triggered. Um, that being said, I don't think that really means anything. Um, they would be very upset. I don't think that there would be a work stoppage. So... You know, it would it would suck for them, no doubt. Um, but as Garber mentioned, right? According to him, the league has lost a billion in revenue year over year, 2019 to 2020. Um, that sounds like a lot. It certainly is. You know, and, and the, the interesting thing that he mentioned, Paul, was that I can't remember the exact wording, but he basically said, I don't think any business could sustain the kind of losses that we have two years in a row. And he talked about cutting operational costs and kind of a lot of reading between the lines there. Like they are going to try to cut those salaries again, which were cut by 5%, which grand scheme, not as much as a lot of people had um, in 2020. And, and not as much as a lot of sports leagues had in 2020. And so I think, you know, I think it is going to set up for um, for them asking for a, a much more significant cut in salary this time around. Than they did. Well, they asked for a big, big cut, but that they they intend on getting a bigger cut this time around than they did last time. Um, and they they've shown that those cuts aren't happening with just the players, right? Major League Soccer laid off twenty percent of its staff. We've seen teams around the league furlough and lay off staff members. Um, these cuts are happening everywhere, and um, I agree that I don't think that this will lead to a work stoppage. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how it impacts the start of the season. Uh, when when the season actually begins, we, we've we've talked a lot about that. We've written about it. Right now, they're planning for early to mid March. Uh, not a lot of people believe that will actually occur. Um, this certainly will play a role in that as well. Uh, Sam, were there other things that Garber said in State of the League that stood out to you? Not anything that really jumped out. Um, you know, one thing that I think is going to be interesting to keep an eye on: the, a reporter from Sports Business Journal asked him a very Sports Business Journal question. Um, the NBA has recently got, you know, got an injection of 900 million from the private market, um, that they distributed 30 million to each team. And he was, Garber was asked if MLS had any thoughts on doing that. And, you know, basically what he said is they can't because there wouldn't be a market for them. <laughs> um, but that they are looking at other ways of injecting cash and equity and financing. And one of those ways, which, I believe SBJ, maybe it was somebody else reported on a couple of months ago, was through private equity firms or outside investors of that ilk taking minority stakes in teams. Um, I think that's going to be really interesting to see if that happens. Uh, franchise values in MLS have consistently risen, uh, exponentially risen, really, over the last decade. Uh, private equity firms have made pretty serious plays into Europe. You know, Silver Lake, which is one of the biggest in the world, I think 
what was it? Help me out here. We just wrote a story about this. <laughs> 500 million stake in CFG, right? Yep. Or 500 million investment in a, in a city football group. Um, so we'll, it'll be interesting to see if there's a market there for MLS, but maybe some teams that, that are a little cash strapped or ownership groups that aren't quite as liquid um, as they were pre-pandemic. Um, maybe they sell a stake of, of their club to a private equity firm here over the next year. Um, that's going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on for me. Anything else to stood out to you? Well, I also think he noted that, hey, it's not going to – don't think of it as abnormal now to start seeing some owners in Major League Soccer sell their clubs. That's something Don Garber said I thought was very notable. Um, there are three MLS teams on the market right now, uh, Houston Dynamo, Orlando City, and Real Salt Lake. And he was asked if that's concerning to him. And he said, no, you know, this is – with fewer expansion markets, this is something that's going to become more commonplace. Um, that's notable. Uh, I, I don't think the the – that the selling stops here necessarily. But I think it's also indicative of the fact that this league is is continuing to grow. There is still interest in buying into MLS, despite some people being very skeptical that there is um, money to be had here. I, I think we still have to recognize that um, to some degree, owning a sports team isn't about making money as much as it is about... It's about having a cool toy, man. Exactly. Um, and so... You know, I, I think I thought that was notable. Just that that Don Garber acknowledged that and said it out loud. Um, so that that stood out to me as well. I, I agree. I'm really interested to see what the market is for Houston and for Orlando, Salt Lake. I think we know what direction that's heading. It looks like Ryan Smith, who is a Utah native, a young tech billionaire, recently bought the Jazz, eighty uh, percent for one point six seven billion dollars. Um, he's got some cash, folks. I think that's probably where that's going to go. Which by the way, I think would be incredible for RSL. Like basically a dream scenario for that club um, who are going through a difficult time <laughs> right now and really have been for the last, geez, when did the Petkey thing happen? 18 months ago? Um, so yeah, it, it's been a wild ride. No shortage of drama out there in Salt Lake. Um, so yeah, I think that's where that that's headed. I'm really interested to see where those other clubs go. I think Houston is interesting in that it should be so much more than this um and i think austin is sort of proving that to both houston and dallas if i'm houston and dallas and i'm looking at what austin is doing right now in terms of season tickets merch sales corporate interest all of that stuff i am embarrassed completely totally utterly embarrassed that team is walking in like this weird relocation that wasn't actually a relocation. They're strolling into MLS, building up during a pandemic year, and they are going to blow you out of the water in terms of public interest immediately. And in a smaller market, by the in way. A smaller market. Um, a less crowded market, pro sports wise, but a smaller market significantly than either of those cities. And if I'm Houston and I'm Dallas, I'm looking at that and I'm like, man, I need to get my ass into gear because this is embarrassing. It's pathetic is what it is in Houston and Dallas. Um, so hopefully they can write that ship. Houston's an interesting market though, because there's a lot of room to grow, right? There's a lot of room to grow and they have the, they have the facility. I was talking to somebody who works in soccer and I said, if there was any MLS team that you would want to move to go and, and be the GM and build something. And you could, you could kind of wipe the slate clean and build something. And, and his answer was, was Houston because of the potential of that market, because of the homegrown talent that's there. You got to get the investment from ownership, which is not, and that's existed. what I said. I said, yeah, if you're wiping the slate, it's got to count ownership too. Mm -hmm, 100%. Um, moving on, uh, moving ahead out of state of the league. Paul, this is, I believe, news that you broke 
last night, Wednesday night, uh, Inter Miami. What was his title? GM, president. I can never yeah, keep chief straight. soccer officer, COO, and and sporting director. I think Paul McDonough. He is out. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that uh, that I can tell you what happened, I will. Um, look, I think uh, Inter Miami is one of the more interesting expansion markets expansion teams to happen in some time in that their expectation was to be Atlanta and LAFC. Their spending was at Atlanta and LAFC levels and their performance was well below both of those clubs, right? When we look at teams that have struggled in their first year, there hasn't been a team since NYCFC in 2015 that has spent significant money and failed to deliver on, on that spending. And and so on one level, there is some surprise that Inter-Miami would make a change so quickly because it's typically not a smart move to to upend your soccer operations after one year. And especially, in my opinion, going into the January transfer window after your expansion year is the most important window that an expansion team has to start to make some some fixes and some course corrections. How are the, how are the initial transfer windows not more important than that one? Well, I think that when you, I've always believed in this, is something I wrote a lot when I was in Orlando. When you build an expansion team, if you're doing a good job as a GM, you're usually hitting on it about 50% of your signings. Like if you have a better, but the difference is you're usually signing four, five, six guys in a window, right? So if you miss on three of them or if they don't perform to the level, and usually half of those are really low level roster guys, right? So it doesn't matter as much. When you're signing 30 guys in one year, you're not, if you hit on 50% or even if you had an amazing year and you hit on, you know, 75%, you're still replacing or 60%, you're still replacing 10 to 15 guys on that roster. You know, there's still a lot of work to be done. And that after a year of playing, you have a much more clear idea of what you got right and what you got wrong and who you want to be and who you can't be. And, and that is so crucial. And the reason I think it's so important is because I was in Orlando and I did cover that team. And Paul McDonough was there. Hold on. You spent time in Orlando? I, you may not know that on this podcast. <laughs> but Paul McDonough was there. And if you go back and look at that roster, that team, by the way, had the best season Orlando City's ever had until this year. No team Orlando City had for the re- remainder of time until this year outperformed that expansion season. So for all the people that dump on McDonough and Adrian Heath and Orlando, instead of focusing on the people who stayed there after them, it's kind of funny to me because that was their best year. Um, and and I, I knew that team very well, and I did not think that was a roster that was that far off. They were the youngest team in MLS. They played more young players than any other team in MLS by nearly, I think it was more than double what FC Dallas did as far as their young players on the field. And when Paul McDonough left... Phil Rollins became the chief soccer officer and was making roster decisions. Brilliant marketing guy, not the person you want making roster adjustments for you. And so what happened was they, there weren't any adjustments that happened. And the ones that did were the wrong ones. And and now you're recovering from a bigger hole. And you, you're pushing down the timeline of getting things right. Um, and then more change came to Orlando and more change came to Orlando so I'm a little bit surprised. On the other hand, if you look at NYCFC, they made a change after that first year, Sam. They they fired Jason Kreis. And so it's not abnormal for a club with high expectations and high spending to say, that wasn't good enough. We're going in a different direction. The difference between a coach and a GM is significant, but it's not 
um, unprecedented to see. And, and I, and it's worth noting that NYCFC hired Patrick Vieira and got better and has been the best regular season team in MLS over the last five years. So, you know, which direction will Miami go? I think will be t- determined by what their next steps are and how quickly those steps are executed. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, I do want to just kind of like put more, a little bit of a bow on the McDonough era, so to speak. You know, they massively underperformed this year, given the money spent. They spent a ton of money and they finished in 10th in the Eastern Conference. It's not good. It's bad. You know, you talk about two of the younger guys that came in for significant sums, Matias Pellegrini and Julian Carranza, didn't do hardly anything. Massively underperformed. Um, Rodolfo Pizarro, I think he, he had some moments. Um, but for whatever reason, whether it's on him or whether it's on who was around him, um, was not at his best. Uh, Gonzalo Higuain wasn't good. Was not good. Had a worse goal record than Chicharito, who wasn't exactly lighting things on fire this season. Uh, Blaise Matuidi, not good. That's a move that we both praised. I thought would work excellently. He wasn't there. Um, and for whatever rhyme or reason, it didn't really pan out on a lot of different levels. I do think that they have talent on that roster. I do think that they can turn it around. I do think part of this is on Diego Alonso, the head coach. Um, but relative to expectations, it's hard. It's honestly, it's hard to argue that McDonough didn't fail as a wrong. I don't, I don't want to say that word because I don't think I don't really buy it. But they had a bad year. And if you're talking about the money that they spent, it's hard to argue with ownership saying, you know what, this wasn't good enough and we're going to go in a different direction. Yeah. I mean, I think I think those two misses at the very beginning were were huge, huge misses, the two young players. It also goes to something I've said on this podcast before, which is when you talk about that youth transfer fund that's coming into the league, whether it's next year or two years down the road, you know, it's not easy even with with higher money spends to to hit on 19 and 20 year old kids um it doesn't there are more misses in this league history than there are hits on that on that yeah. age group yeah. and 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 pellegrini and carranza are examples of that i i think it's worth noting the change in philosophy now, you have to also remember that this roster was it, was it a change though because like or was the plan always to add older players to supplement those younger guys i think there was a dis- pretty distinct change in philosophy from signing two younger players and and the players that they were rumored to be chasing before coronavirus hit and and disrupted that cha- that January window they were, were they were always in for the older european guys though no, according no, to those, according those, to those reports the the reports that were there were some old, older players that were there but the but the reports that were kind of negotiations were zoning in on two players um were a younger player in argentina almendra and uh Sebastian Drusi, who was in Russia, who is in, in, right. in his prime player. Right. And man, they, I can barely they, remember it, that. It, it feels so happen. long ago. <laughs> it didn't happen. Coronavirus broke that window open. Miami was 0-3 or 0-2. They went to MLS's back. They signed Gonzalez Perez. He wasn't allowed to play. And they lost all three games at MLS's back. And that, I think, led to a pretty significant decision that hey we we can't even we can't think about young players like we've got to fix this team right now and you know they signed Blaise Matuidi on a TAM deal and Gonzalo Higuaín was was signed on a free transfer right and and I'm interested to see uh what this team looks like going forward is it going to be more of that 
Is it going to be more of the veteran signings? Or are they going to say, okay, we we missed on these two young players, but we still believe in you know trying to find guys that have resale value? Which way are they going to go? That's going to be important to watch in Miami as well. And let's not forget that you know David Beckham played on LA Galaxy teams that were uber successful with older stars, right? Mm-hmm. Robbie Keane and David Beckham. Yeah, I mean, you talk about those teams. That's like the best dynasty in MLS history that the Sounders, if they win on Saturday, are probably in a discussion with. Yeah, so, so I, I'm just really intrigued. But I, I don't disagree with you that there were you know those two misses of young players and the amount of money that was spent on them you know that that killed this this roster in a lot of ways and and then i think some of the mls signings that were brought in to start underperformed luis yeah. robles was not good ben sweat was not good will trap was not good he did not fit in that midfield and in fact he lost his starting job for a while um to to victor yo yeah victor yo i played him so so though missing on those mls guys really hurt this this team as well um and we, you know, this could be the right decision for Miami. It, it could be one that sets them back. I think it's determined on who the next hire is. And I, yeah. And we know what MLS trends are right now for for who for where they look for hires. McDonough was kind of an exception to be a domestic yeah, hire. It's at been club. it's been pretty international. No MLS experience. Uh, nine of the last twenty four sporting directors to be hired have come to MLS without any. Or with a year or less of experience in the league from abroad, uh, the 15 that were hired before that, none of them were fit into that category. All of them had previous MLS experience. So definitely trending that direction. Paul, before we get out of here, I think we, we owe our listeners one more terrible prediction from 2020. Our playoff picks have been so bad. <laughs> so bad. Mine in particular, I think. I think yours have been slightly better than mine. But we got to pick MLS Cup, man. Who you got? Saturday night. Does the Sounders make it three and five? Does Caleb Porter go two for two in finals in Columbus? Who's going to win? I had Seattle beating Toronto, I think, in my playoff prediction. Yeah, so you got to stick, you gotta so stick with I'm the Sounders, So I'm going to stick right? with the Sounders. I'm sticking with the Sounders. Okay. I have no idea what's going to happen in this game. Like, none. Like, I actually think it's going to be a really good game. I think the Sounders generally perform better against teams that try and play. Columbus is going to try and play. Um, Seattle's best game of the, of the playoffs was against LAFC, a team that tries to play. They struggled against Dallas and against Minnesota, teams that kind of shut it down a little bit more. Dallas more to more so than Minnesota. The midfield trios, really excited to see them duke it out. Um, Artur, Nagby, Zellerayon for the crew. Um, and we'll see what lineup gets picked for the Sounders, but probably... If Schmetzer rolls with what what brought him to this dance, uh, it'll be Roldan, Jao, Jao Paulo, and Nico Ladero. I think that's those are going to be awesome matchups. I think you have good matchups all over the field, honestly. Um, that being said, I'm going to go Columbus. I think no, you know what? No, I'm going Seattle. I changed my mind again. I was, I it didn't feel right. Rui Diaz in the playoffs, he can't be stopped, and that's going to be the difference. I think. Uh, so yeah, I think we're, we're both taking the Sounders, but like, like you just heard, I'm, I'm rather torn. I, I like this Columbus team. I think there's a lot of talent. I think there's more talent in Seattle and I think the DPs are better in yeah, Seattle. That's what it comes down to. Uh, it's going to be hard for, I, I think for Columbus to, to take Ladera out of the game. And I like Artur a lot. Um, but he's, I, I predict Ladera to have a, a pretty big game. Ladero and Nagby watching Ladero on the defensive side. Because he, he might be better, I think he probably is, better at, 
at kind of counterpressing and pressing than any other number 10 in MLS in terms of his work rate and determination and just he shows up everywhere. And Nagby, I think, is probably the best center midfielder in the league at breaking the press and getting out of it. Um, so watching those two in that specific individual matchup going to be really fun. I think it's going to be a fun final in general. I think this one sets up pretty nicely. I think we should get a good game. I'm hoping for that. Not one of those KG affairs. I think both teams are going to go out there and try and try and make make some stuff happen. We will be back the next time you hear us. There will be a new MLS Cup champion. We will be into off-season mode, which is probably on-season mode for you and I, Paul, um, because this year hasn't been, you know, like go, go, go 24-7. But um, thank you for listening. Enjoy the game on Saturday night. It's the final, man. This is what we, we did this whole weird year for. So enjoy it. Have fun. Let's all hope for a good game. Until next time, I'm Sam Stasekul. He's Paul Tenorio. This has been Allocation Disorder. <laughs>